of Scotland to the spiritual splendor that is Augusta. Grab a seat, grab a glass, and punch your ticket to the Par Train. Hey guys, thanks for hopping on another Par Train. This is episode 15. Before we get into the incredible interview with Jason Sobel, the senior golf writer for ESPN.com, let me give you a quick preview of what to expect. So you guys are in for a treat. This might be our best interview yet. Uh, Jason poses as a sports psychologist and gives Jordan Spieth a bit of a pep talk. You'd think, why does he need a pep talk? Well, Jason has some pretty interesting things to say. We also ask him what one conversation or situation he'd want to be a fly on the wall for. You'll get ready for that answer. That's a good one. He kind of takes us through what it was like to be at Royal Birkdale during the craziness of Jordan Spieth. And then he gives us a lot of great insights on what it's like to be a golf writer you know, what it's like interacting with the players every day, what he does from tournament to tournament. Make sure you guys stay to the end because his funny story that he had with, uh, went to dinner with Phil Mickelson. It has to do with gambling. That's all I'm going to say. It's an incredible story. And then he'll even give you a bit of a uh, preview into the PGA Championship coming up in a few weeks with his pick of who he thinks is going to win at Quill Hollow. So incredible interview. Uh, Let's get to it. All right, and we are back on the par train with a very special guest, uh, Jason Sobel, the senior golf writer from ESPN.com, used to write for Golf Channel as well. Um, Jason, welcome to the train. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Been looking forward to this. Didn't even require a ticket from you. We're excited to have you on your first ride. Uh, Yeah, no, this is great. I... uh... I'll have to tell my my little boy, my five year old, loves trains. So I'm going to tell him. I, I walked outside. I'm sitting outside our house uh, on the back patio talking to you right now. So I'll have to tell him when I come inside that I was on a train, and he'll just freak out. He'll think it was great. See, we're a family program as well. We're kind of doing it all here. Uh, but so, as our listeners know, we try and do things a little bit different here. There's been enough recaps, I think, in the golf media of the incredible Open Championship at Royal Birkdale. So I wanted to start you off and put you on the spot a bit with some fun, two fun segments. Our regular listeners will know, normally we do the sports psychologist segment for previewing a major like we did with Sergio and Ricky in the Masters and U.S. Open. I would love to hear you as a sports psychologist for you to pick one pro that played at Royal Birkdale, whether you want to pick them up or encourage them for... Uh, Quail Hollow at the PGA in a few weeks. Uh, who you picking for your sports psychologist? Ooh, I think it would almost be too easy to take Matt Kuchar because you can give him the whole cliched, hey, keep your head up, you'll win one someday, keep doing <laughs> what you're doing, you're doing everything right. I don't know if that's more than a 10-second little uh, lay down on the couch for Cooch right now. So uh, I think that's too easy. Worry would be a little bit tougher but still, I think it's just, hey, you know, you got to you gotta get off to a good start. You really need to think, I'm bleeping Rory McIlroy, which is what J.P. Fitzgerald's caddy told him after uh, six holes, which uh, was six holes too late for him on Thursday last week. So uh, I, I think Rory's still too easy. I want to be the sports psychologist for Jordan Spieth. Uh, only because, and I think some people would think, well, that's too easy too. The guy, what are you going to do? Say, hey, keep winning. But <laughs> I, I think there's more to it than that. I think Jordan Spieth right now, has kind of evolved from almost golf superstar to 
mainstream superstar. Uh, I think that he's gotten into the space. He, he's become, just in the last few months, very good friends with Michael Phelps. Uh, there's that picture oh, yeah. from uh, Cabo, I believe, that he put on Instagram with Michael Phelps, Michael Jordan, and Russell Wilson, and a few other big-time athletes. And I really do think he's transformed just in the last few months from sort of being this golf superstar, maybe somewhere like a notch below Rory and a notch above Dustin Johnson, just kind of on the Q rating level to now skyrocketing past those guys and being that big. So I think that if I'm Jordan Spieth's sports psychologist, I tell him, look, you're still just a a normal kid from Dallas, Texas. Uh, You're still grounded. You've got a great family. They're your support system. All these guys coming in and out of your life right now who are really fun to hang out with and really fun to talk to, they're your friends, and that's great. But remember where you came from. Remember your roots. Remember the people that helped get you to this point because those are the most important people who you can rely on going forward because you will have tough times. It's not always going to be major championship wins, as you know. So uh, I I think that if I was – coaching up Jordan Spieth a little bit, I would remind him of those things right now. Love it. And is there anything specific you would tell him leading into his first bid for the career Grand Slam? Have fun. Look, we saw when when Jordan Spieth got behind, it was was very strange. And he, he admitted it afterwards, but you could almost see it on his face. On Sunday afternoon, he was playing very tight. Started out playing tight when he had the lead and continued playing tight through the turn. And all of a sudden... He lost the lead on 13, which, of course, was a miraculous bogey, but he still did lose the lead there, and all of a sudden he starts smiling. He almost <laughs> looked like he started having fun once he was down, and that's when he played his best golf, and he admitted afterwards that he became less nervous after he lost the lead. Now, I don't know what that says about him. I don't know what that says about how he was able to come back and, and win the tournament, but if I was advising him right now, I'd say, look, when you were smiling and having fun, you played your best golf. I know that's easier said than done, but just go out there and smile. In fact, I've written this over the years about Tiger Woods that when Tiger smiled, and you know, granted he's he's not right now. Who knows if he's going to play in the future? But uh, back in the day, I mean, we're talking in the 09, 10, 11, 12 years, and some of those were really bad. Some of those were really good, as some people forget. But when Tiger smiled and went out and had fun. He played his best golf, and I think that's the case for most players out there. So I, I would definitely say that for Jordan Spieth, too. For sure. Yeah, the last few years for Tiger at times, it's like the guy just wanted to get off the course. It was somewhat painful to watch, but that's definitely a good one. You might be uh, fully responsible for getting Jordan Spieth a career grand slam <laughs> on his first try because of this pep talk. So I'm just throwing that out there. It's a lot of pressure. Well, I assume he's listening right now, so uh, you know he's welcome. For sure. All right. I'll take my 10%. All right. Not a bad not a bad showing for your first par train segment. We're going to go right into number two before we get into uh, some more Royal Birkdale stuff. But this one's called Fly on the Wall. So you've been in the golf media for a long time. So you could either pick a conversation or situation that you would want to be in the room for and a fly on the wall or the best one that you have been in the room for. Oh, man. I've been in the room for a lot of really good ones. <sighs> Man, 
man, this is this is tough because you can go back in history. I mean, boy, I, I'd love to be be there back in 1913 when Francis we met was winning the U.S. Open, kind of sitting around at his house across the street from Brookline and what it was like then, all the way through. Uh, what you could say, 51 with Hogan coming back at the U.S. Open that year. I, I, in my tenure, I, I'm, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna at least put this down to in my tenure. Like since I've been covering the game, which my first tournament I ever covered was in 2000, so we're talking in the last 17, 18 years. I'm I'm gonna say um, the Ryder Cup. Uh, we're, we're talking uh, Tom Watson's year. What was that? 14. Mm-hmm. Um, the Ryder Cup where. Boy, just everything went wrong. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. There were personality clashes. There were differences of opinion. There were, uh, quite frankly, uh, people that didn't like each other in that room. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna dovetail this. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put two together because I want to be in the room there, and then I want to be in the room this past year for the U.S. Ryder Cup team, just so I can see the differences between the two. Ah, I okay. See where it all went wrong under Tom Watson and how it went wrong, and then where and how it all went right under Davis Love last year. Wow. Number two. That, that's, a, that's a pretty good answer. Here's mine. I want to be in DJ's house on Wednesday of Masters Week <laughs> because I still don't buy it. And actually, it's a perfect segue. I've heard rumors. I'm sure you've heard rumors. Sure. Is there anything that you can tell us made him fall down the stairs supposedly with uh, his socks on? Here's the problem with rumors is that they they spread so quickly. If there was any truth to any of them, I think they would have come out. Yeah. Uh, you know, and I, I've heard them too. And every, everyone spreads rumors and everyone says, oh, why don't you report something about DJ? Why don't you go figure it out? Well, guess what? We've all looked into it. If there was anything to report that we had uh, based on fact, we would have done so. Yeah. The fact that no one has speaks volumes. I, I did have, and, and I will give you this much. And, and again, I, I have not looked into that. I don't know if this is true or not. I had one caddy pull me aside at a tournament a couple months ago, about a month after the Masters, and say, hey, go look into that rental house. I said, well, what do you mean by that? And he said, go check out the house. And I go, look, you're being a little too subtle for me. I, I need something else here. He said, there's no stairs in that house. I was hoping I said, you would say that. <laughs> I said, okay, well, that's a pretty good way. And, no and, way. And I, I, I don't know how to figure that out. And, and he said it, was only, it wasn't a flight of stairs. It was only three stairs because it could still be a ranch house that at some point goes, you know, sort of a, a split from uh, the living room into the kitchen where you go down a couple of stairs and he can still fall on those stairs. So I, I don't know. I, <laughs> look, I, I tend to I, – I, I don't know what the real answer would be. So, some of those rumors out there are, are – absolutely crazy i can tell you that much i i have heard stuff that i can vehemently deny but i've also heard from players and caddies look you know i i don't know this smells fishy that smells fishy and this part of it i i don't know the fact that he showed up the next day and hit balls on the range for an hour and a half and went to the first tee and then withdrew uh, to me that takes out a lot of the innuendo that was out there yeah no that's fascinating i actually haven't heard that about I was hoping you were going to say it was a ranch uh, rental house. That's fascinating. All right. Love that. Let's get into a bit of what you just experienced. I know you just landed like a day ago from uh, from Royal Birkdale. So 
what I want to know, we're not going to go into the recaps per se, but I know you were there. So I want to know where were you? Were you in the press center or in the media center when 13 was happening? Were you out on the course? Where, where were you when that was happening? I was. I went back to the media center. It's just easier to get work done there. Um, it's easier to see. Look, I, I, I know that. You know, there are probably a lot of people listening right now saying, oh, how can you not be right there? You got a chance to yeah. sit there and watch. It's not what the job is, though. We, we've got to do um, not just writing afterwards and, and analyzing the, the, uh, the event afterwards, but we've got to work in real time, you know, whether it's Twitter and other social media feeds that we have just uh, specifically on ESPN.com and you know, working up our uh, column ideas for that evening. We, we've got to kind of be there. So I walked a little bit early in the round, but I was in the media center, and quite frankly, I'd say about 95% of the people were uh, of the media were in the media center at that point. So, uh, no, I was, I was watching along on TV with everybody else. Uh, I'd walked the course a lot during the week, but at that point, it just makes more sense to be uh, to be inside and to be able to watch. And uh, we weren't far from what they call the flash area where we can pick off other players. So when other players were finishing up, I could quickly run outside, talk to them, and run back inside. So it's just uh, it's not ideal as far as being a fan. And as someone who loves the game, you want to be out there watching the entire thing. But as right. someone who has a job working in the game, it's a lot more efficient to be inside usually. Yeah, speaking of fly on the wall, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't mind being in the in the press center during uh, thirteen. I would have loved to hear the conversations going on, but I think everybody was having a similar uh, reaction. But speaking of that moment, so one thing I haven't heard uh, discussed at all by the media or anyone is Jordan's reaction. I've heard the stories about Greller talking him off the three wood and two seventy versus two thirty, which clearly was you know. An important moment. He probably wouldn't have made bogey if he hit three wood, but he hit three iron. And I heard him. I, I couldn't quite make out what he said, but I've watched it multiple times, and I've seen Jordan say, "Either come on, guys," or he was clearly upset after the shot. So I was curious. Do you have any insight? Was that purely because maybe of his heavy strike and he caught it a bit fat, or do you think photographers? Uh, were shooting shots in his downswing, or maybe both? I, I don't know. I think that was self, uh, uh, self-inflicted sort of uh, okay. uh, anger right there. I, I don't think there was any kind of – because he'll call him out. If there was a camera flash uh, or a camera shutter in his backswing – He'll, he'll point him out at that point. He's, he's not shy about that, nor are most players. So uh, I don't think it was that. I, I don't know exactly. Um, I just think it, he knew that he didn't catch it cleanly, and, and he knew that he didn't hit it quite enough. So uh, I think that's where the frustration was, at least immediately there. Yeah. Okay. So I, I you had a great article come out about how we shouldn't compare – uh, Jordan to you know it's the, it's the knee jerk reaction to try and compare. Obviously, he's had more uh, majors of this at this point uh, at 23 than than Jack. You know, adding in his 11 uh, PGA Tour victories, but um, not to compare. But I'm curious what you think about the next dominant guy, and not necessarily who's going to be the next dominant because that's what we're always looking for. But who who do you think is the best guy for golf to be dominant? I know Alan uh, Shipnut said that Jordan has jumped Rory as this generation's most important golfer. But I was curious to hear your take on, like, if you could pick one guy, like maybe 
like if Ricky would be dominant, would he have a better impact on the game than if Jordan became dominant versus Rory and Dustin and all these guys? First of all, I, I agree that Jordan has jumped Rory, and I agree it just happened in the past week that he is now the most important golfer playing in the game today. I, I completely agree with that, and I think it just happened. Uh, which one of them, if one was to be dominant, man, they're all like very honest, very likable people. Um, they all have a lot of fans. I, I, I get the sense that Rory, sort of just for the more global aspect of the game, mm-hmm is maybe just a little bit more uh, shows a little more of himself and a little more personality, but it's very, very close. I, I don't even know. I'm, I'm even second guessing that as the words are coming out of my mouth. Um, what I will say about that though, is that I don't think Spieth is going to be dominant. And I don't mean that as a knock on him. Look, mm-hmm. it's really easy. Hey, he just won his third major. Well, I don't think he's that good. No, I actually think he's really, really good. I, I don't know that he's better than Rory or even better than Dustin Johnson, but I know that in the moment, dealing with the pressure, dealing with adversity, trying to win major championships, I would take him every single time over those guys. doesn't mean those guys aren't going to win majors at some point, too. They already have. They're going to win more of them. But in that situation, I'm taking Jordan. He, has, he, has, he just has this certain something. And I was thinking about today, and the best analogy I can come up with is that if you watch Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers both play football, you would look at him, and you could very well say Aaron Rodgers is a better quarterback. Aaron Rodgers throws a better spiral. Aaron Rodgers, you know, has maybe better pocket presence. Mm-hmm. And this is coming from a guy who's a Patriots fan. I love Tom <laughs> Brady. But you'd say, you know, I, I, I'm watching them, and I'm watching video, and it looks like Rodgers is a little bit better. But you look at the overall basis of what they've done, and there's absolutely no way you could ever say that. You say, oh, Tom Brady's the GOAT. He's got six Super Bowls, and, you know, the guy's – Uh, obviously the best of all time because of what he's done and how many times he's won and what he's done in the clutch. And and I liken Spieth to Tom Brady the same way I would liken, say, a McElroy to Aaron Rodgers or Drew Brees or somebody like that. That's actually – I've never heard that analogy. That's – I totally agree with that. And actually, from a brand standpoint, you know Tom Brady's an Under Armour guy. Oh, I know. I know. (laughs) So that works out just fine. You might have just uh, sparked something. All right, my last question in regards to uh, the majors is obviously the mental fortitude is, you know, the, the differentiator in regards to who can win a major. We saw that with Tiger and obviously most recently with Spieth. I was trying to think today of the players on tour in my mind that are the strongest mentally, and I can't really think of anyone besides speed because it's so streaky right you've got the jason day run you've had the speed the 15 you have the rory run i can't really think of someone else that like d- is defined by mentally strong can you think of anyone else on tour right now that meets that it's a really good question i i'll tell you what and we're looking at basically the best of the best right i mean we're looking at the upper echelon players yeah, I don't think it's Rory, and Rory almost admits that it's not Rory. I mean, Rory has gone through, uh, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, like he had for six holes uh, to start out the opening round uh, of the Open last week, or, um, you know, just full stretches like he had missing the cut three out of 
his last four events entering that week. Um, uh, Rory goes through these places where you go, the guy has all the physical gifts in the world. He's just maybe not mentally strong enough to do this on a week-in, week-out basis. Jason Day, I would sort of say the same thing about, uh, I don't think Dustin Johnson gets enough credit for being mentally tough. I, I think, and, and I'll come right out and say it, I think he's got this stigma of being just a dumb jock, of being a guy who yeah. sees the ball and swings hard and hits the ball. Guess what? He's doing it just like these other guys. These other guys have to go out and play golf, too. At some point, we look at Dustin Johnson and we say, hey, you know what? Okay, he hits it a long way, and he makes a lot of birdies. But at some point, you say, boy, the guy's actually mentally tough. Yeah. And whether that's because he's able to block out everything else that's going on and just walk up to the ball and hit it, look, that's that's a, an important trait to have for a player, and not every player can do that. I think he does a better job of blocking out everything that's happened up until that moment than most other players. So I, I put him on that short list, and I think he doesn't get nearly enough credit for it. Yeah, I would say Brooks Kepka is actually very similar to that, where they're, you know, they're the guys that don't seem to overthink things. And I know from being on, on shoots with Dustin Johnson, he's pretty much what you see is what you get. So, um, but to your point, that works to his advantage. And I think that's the same with both these guys. And it may have something to do, and Brooks Koepka's admitted that he's not a huge golf fan. You know, if he's not playing golf in a tournament, he's probably not watching on TV. He's not hanging around the grill room. He's not really into it. He's into other sports. He, you know, played baseball growing up, and he likes to do other stuff. Dustin Johnson is sort of the same way. I've talked to Dustin about it where, you know, he's watching every sport besides golf when he's not out there playing it. And maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's part where they say, look, I, I know that if I don't hit a good shot here and I lose the tournament, I'm not going to be going home watching Golf Channel for the next week and reading the newspapers <laughs> and seeing how I screwed up. So I don't have to worry about it as much. Whereas a guy like Spieth is very much into golf. He said after he won the other day that other than his faith and his family – that golf is third in his life, and it's a very close third, that he is uh, that much into the game. He said he just loves the game and can't wait to play and can't wait to compete and all the, all the right things that you want a guy of that stature to say. Um, but that's not the case for everybody out there, and that's okay. For some guys, look, it's, hey, I like the game. I maybe don't love it, and I certainly don't love it all the time, but I like it, and I can make a great living at it, and I'm going to try my best, and when it's over, if I haven't won, okay, I'm going to go home and I'm going to put my feet up and I'm going to be okay with it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I totally agree. All right, let's shift gears from uh, major championships and Royal Birkdale to some good general questions I got for you just being in, living in the golf world and, and okay. on a daily basis. So as a golf writer, some would say dream job, right? <laughs> we were saying before we started the interview that you know, working at ESPN and living in Florida and not in Bristol, Connecticut is a pretty good gig. You get to go to a lot of the events. I was just hoping to paint the picture for the listeners and for my own right of like, as a golf writer, take us through the daily flow. If you're going to a tournament, you know, how does that work? How often are you traveling to the tournaments? How often are you not working with players versus writing? Like, can you paint that picture a bit? I cover probably 20 to 22 events a year, maybe up to 24, and not all of them are, are fully Monday through Sunday. I mean, there might be a couple that I go to just to report some stories out on Tuesday, Wednesday, then leave. There might be some sort of non-PGA Tour event type things that I go to, but I'd say I'm on the road 
mostly about 22, 24 weeks out of the year. So uh, that's at least the schedule. Let's say for a week like last week when I'm covering the Open and we had for ESPN.com uh, seven people covering the event. Uh, that includes an editor and six writers. And, you know, you're kind of you're always in constant communication with the other guys. We're not stepping on each other's toes and we're all trying to work together. And I think we do uh, a really good job of working together as that team um, trying to put together the, uh, the best content for the readers. Um, I don't know that I could go through like, here's the day. Here's exactly how it goes because every day is different. And it just depends how things are going. I mean, you would, you know, it's usually show up uh, around the first tee time. Kind of depends on, on the day. If it's uh, if it's a major championship, right around the first tee time. If I'm covering the old Valspar Championship in Tampa, I might show up at nine o'clock in the morning. I might I might miss the front nine for the first handful of groups uh, <laughs> off on the course, and you know I don't feel too guilty about that usually. But uh, and then. Once you get there, you're you're basically looking for stories. You're scanning the leaderboard, um, and I, you know I spent so much time reading stuff, you know, googling different stories, you know, going through Twitter. I spent a lot of time on Twitter, um, just looking at different stories, and you know, you might read something about a guy, a little note in a story somewhere where it's not really a big deal, and it, they didn't make a much of a, a commotion about it, and then. Then all of a sudden, that guy's leading a tournament. You say, you know what? That would be a really good column idea for the day. So I'm just trying to get as much information as I can and try to bank all that information so that when I do write the story, I've got everything sort of at my disposal that I can pick out the best ideas and write the best stories. And uh, sometimes you hit a home run. Lots of times you hit singles and doubles and and once in a while you strike out too and it it feels awful to strike out it feels like a a golfer when he goes out and shoots 80 and doesn't make a birdie and and it feels awful and we've all done it we all write stories and afterwards you go home at night and you go i can't believe i wrote that that day that was terrible and then there are times you you go home at the end of the day and you go man that that was a really satisfying day of work and and i'm really proud of what i was able to write that day and um you know it's uh on those days it makes everything worthwhile you try to you try to find the best stories you try to report the best stories um you know and there's there's always a difference between you know we're writing news stories and columns at the same time we're doing social media we're trying to be kind of live and present in the moment um but also trying to look at things from a big picture perspective as well so i'm probably giving you a terrible answer right now because i'm (laughs) meandering all over the place but it's true that's what it's like there's no okay at at 9 a.m you're doing this and then at noon you'll be doing this and then at three o'clock it it doesn't work that way your 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 job your day is dictated by what the leaderboard looks like what the best stories are who's up there who's doing what and and you're trying to find the best way to report those stories that you can. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a dream to me. I mean, <laughs> the one part of it that I wanted to dig a little bit deeper on is because I, admittingly, I am one of those guys that loves watching all of the interviews. I try and pick out what, whether it's the player's energy, the things they say. I try and leverage that to try and... Um, better predict uh, what's going to happen in the tournament. I think a lot has to do with your energy on the course, your confidence, obviously. So I was curious how you analyze press conferences. Like, do you take a lot out of them during that time to gauge confidence? I mean, you're the one of the ones that is asking questions. So how do you take press conferences from the inside? Do you ever gather things that actually end up 
being a real insight that help you with uh, picks or your 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 articles, or how do you look at those? Yeah, absolutely. I, I can gain insight. You know, certain players are more forthcoming than other players. Uh, I mentioned Rory McIlroy and his honesty. You you cannot go into a Rory McIlroy press conference and leave with nothing. You you will come out of there with some sort of whether it's a, a good story, whether it's uh, an anecdote about something, whether it's. Uh, a feeling that, hey, he's really got it this week or he really doesn't have it this week. You, you'll come out of there with some some sense of, I know Rory McIlroy better than I did half an hour ago. Right. Um, and, and that's, uh, as, a, as a writer and as a reporter, that's what I want every time I walk into that interview room is a chance to get to know these guys and learn more about them so that I can better do my job. And uh, I wish it was explained like that to these players because I, I think some of them get it. I think a lot of them don't get it. A lot of them look at the media almost as the enemy. And let me get through this and let me sort of deflect everything, sort of like we're hockey players taking shots and they're the goalie just deflecting pucks everywhere. At some point, I wish someone would tell them, hey, look, use us. We're the, we're the conduit to the public. We're the guys who are able to tell your stories. So if you've got a story that's w- worth getting out there, I, hey, look, I want to tell those stories. Right. You know, and I, I, want, I want to write about what's going on with you and why why you've missed the cut in four straight events or why you're playing so well these days or why you just fired your caddy. Let me tell that story so that I can get that out to the public. And that's what I'm looking for in those interviews. As far as, yeah, can, can you listen to a guy in an interview room and, and say, man, this guy's going to win this week? Look, I've tried it before. I've tried that. <laughs> I've tried standing on the range and watching players and saying, oh, you know what? This guy's striping it. It just doesn't work. I, I would love to tell you, like, look, I know things on a Wednesday afternoon after being around these guys for three days that people sitting at home don't know. There's not much to it. Every once in a while, there's a little, you know, hey, this guy told me he's playing really well, and sometimes that works out. But a lot of times guys say, I'm striping it right now. I'm playing really well. Watch out for me this week. And they go and shoot 76, 74 and miss the cut. So right. it, it doesn't always work out that way anyway. Yep. And like Trevor Illman wins the Masters out of out of nowhere, and then finishes last place the next week. So, I've been told before it's stupid to try and pick winners, but that's not going to prevent us from from doing it. But but speaking one, one of my favorite, I'll, I'll give you a quick story. This yeah. was oh man, sort of seven eight years ago. You'll probably remember this, but Mark Wilson went on a nice little run. Oh yeah, uh, through Mark Phoenix, Wilson, one of the nicest guys in the game. He won uh, what was then the Bob Hope out in Palm Springs, and Two or three weeks later, two starts later, he won in Phoenix. And yeah. in between, he finished, oh, I think it was like a T-55 at L.A. or Pebble or something like that. And so I interviewed him after the second of those wins. And jokingly, I said to him, so what went wrong with that one? You know, just kind of starting out the interview like that. And he, he took it jokingly. He was laughing. He said, honestly, though, I will tell you something. I hit the ball just as well that week as I did the two weeks that I won, and I just didn't get the lucky bounces, and the ball just didn't go into the cup. And, and I'm telling you, that's it's such a fine line between winning and being absolutely uh, uh, out of the mix in the golf tournament. I, I don't think people understand that enough. I, I think people just see the final result and the final score because, uh, look, that's all you have to go on. Unless you're watching 
all 73 shots from Mark Wilson in a given round, you're not going to know whether he played well or not other than looking at his final score. And you look at the score and you look at the stats and you say, eh, he didn't play that well. But you hear it from a player and that really turned, kind of turned my eyes or opened my eyes to um, just how fine that line is between winning and basically being kind of obsolete for that week at least. So, uh, you know, it, I, I think it's that case for anybody. I, you know, we try to analyze these guys to the degree where we say, hey, you won last week and this week, man, you were terrible. You only came in fourth place. What went wrong for you? <laughs> and the guy's looking at you saying, uh, nothing went wrong. I actually thought I played pretty well, but he's sitting, he's out there playing golf. We're sitting back watching a leaderboard and watching his name bounce up and down. And he walks off the course and says, well, I, I played pretty well. I hit the ball where I wanted to. I, I made a handful of putts. Three guys played better than me. I, I, I also use this whenever I talk about Charles Howell III. I, I wrote something mm. recently saying that Charles Howell's now got 16 runner-up finishes, two wins, 16 runner-up finishes on the PGA Tour. Does he really? Yeah, and wow. he got his 16th in the playoff loss at the Quicken Loans to Kyle Stanley a couple yep. weeks ago. And I've made the case that he is legitimately, oh, about 10 feet away from being a Hall of Fame golfer. And when yeah. I say that, I mean that if you totaled up those 16 events where he finished second place, I'm sure that he missed putts where he burned the edge two or three times on each of those given weeks. You put those all together, they fall into the cup instead of staying out. We're talking about Charles Howell in the same way we talk about Davis Love right now or Fred Couples. Yeah. And we say, man, what a great golf. Or maybe we talk about him and say, how has that guy won 18 times on tour and never won a major championship? What a what a slacker. I can't believe he's never done it. And yet, <laughs> instead, we look at him and say, ah, oh, he's got two wins. Ah, he's just, you know, just never worked out for him. Or he's sort of the poster boy for these guys get paid too much. He's made $34 million on tour and only has two wins. Guess what? His career is so close to being a Hall of Famer. It's just it's that fine line that I'm talking about where uh, it can go either way for these guys, and, um, and and there's no rhyme or reason a lot of times, too. Yep, for sure. And speaking of that, the, the juxtaposition there of what Hal could be, who do you think is a pro that gets the worst rap on tour that doesn't deserve it? And on the flip side, the pro that's beloved but maybe deserves a bit more criticism. <sighs> Off the top of my head. Uh, so, okay, here's a good story for you. I, I've had my run-ins with Bubba Watson. I think anyone that covers the game <laughs> has. Bubba Watson is not such a bad guy that the, the majority of the public should absolutely hate him the way they do. Mm-hmm. Um, we were playing, so we played an afternoon round. Uh, on Monday last week, after we were done working, we went over to a course called Formby Golf Club. Uh, really, really good club. It, it serves as an open qualifier uh, course every year. And um, in the group behind us, turned out it was Bubba with Ted Scott, his caddy, and, uh, and another caddy, John Lamonti, who's uh, Aaron Baddeley's caddy. Mm-hmm. And the three of them were just hanging out playing. Bubba came up to us, shook our hands, said, hey, how you guys playing? What's going on? As cordial and as nice as could be. And afterwards, you know, he walked away, he goes back to his ball, we go and do our thing, and I was with two of my colleagues, and we said, if other people could see that side of Bubba, he would be a lot more Mm well-liked. And for some reason, he just doesn't show it publicly. And and too often, all the public sees is him complaining about something or uh, almost trying to make a joke about something that falls on its face and it sounds like he's being a bad guy. I mean, I I joked with him afterwards, I I went up to him, it was a pretty tough course, and... 
I, I said, Bubba, you know, you were right. And he looks at me and goes, right about what? I said, playing golf is a lot harder than writing about it. And he started laughing. You know, that, was, <laughs> that was a comment he had made last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah. He, got, he got a lot of grief for it. Well, he was kidding about it. And he explained that he put a video on Instagram or Twitter afterwards and said he was just kidding. He didn't mean it. For whatever reason, whenever he says something, it's taken very literally. He uh, Maybe there's something in his delivery. He probably wouldn't be a very good stand-up comic, but it, it, is that a reason for so much hate out there towards the guy? I, uh, I get that. Look, he's, he's a little kind of on and off. You know, there are times when I've walked up to Bubba and he's in a great mood. And he stands and talks for 20 minutes. Times I've tried to ask him a very innocent question and he bites my head off and walks away. Mm. So he definitely deserves some criticism. And I understand that as much as anybody. But to the extent that people dislike him, I almost think it's because there are very few players to dislike on tour. And you've got to dislike somebody. And all of a sudden, you see this guy, it's like, all right, well, some of the things he said I don't really like, so he's the guy I'm going to hate. Ian Poulter is very much the same way. Yeah. Ian Poulter, I've I, I've played in his tournament that he has every year at Lake Nona, where he's raising literally millions of dollars for uh, Dream Flight, which brings kids, um, I believe it's underprivileged kids, uh, from around the world to Disney World and other places and lets them uh, kind of enjoy a side of life they don't get to see very often. He's, he's very involved with that. People don't see that aspect, and they see him being cocky and arrogant. I get that, and that's out there, and, and that is definitely part of his personality. But it's not all of his personality. He's not a completely bad guy. And, um, you know, it, one of the questions I get probably more often than not from, uh, from, ever, from whenever I meet someone and they hear about my job is, Who's like the nicest guy on tour? Who are the nice guys? What's this guy like? <laughs> and my answer is always that there's this is not a black and white issue. If someone said, you know, hey, uh, you know, that guy Frank works in accounting at your office. Is that guy a good guy or a bad guy? You'd go, I, I, he's, he's okay. I, you know, he's nice sometimes. Uh, one time he yelled at me when I did something wrong. And uh, it doesn't mean he's a bad guy, though. And, and I always try to explain that these golfers are just like normal people and that uh, most of them are good people, I think. Uh, can some of them be uh, a little bit angry when you walk up to them after shooting a 78 and say, hey, you got 10 minutes to talk? Yeah, of course they can. They can be a little bit uh, irritable. But I think we all could be in that situation as well. Yeah, for sure. In my experience, Jason Day and Justin Rose have probably been two of the nicest players that I've met. Sure. And sure. honestly, watching Jason Day over the last six months, obviously he's going through a lot with his mom, but he seems to be, uh, to your point about being happy on the course, it seems to be struggling in that category and not being as happy-go-lucky as he usually was, at least you know what I've seen. So hopefully, uh, I don't know what you've seen with him, but hopefully he can get back to to that on the course. I, I haven't seen enough. And, and here, here's part of the problem with being in this position. And part of the thing I've I, you know, quite honestly always struggled with is that being a golf writer is almost like a game of whack-a-mole where, hey, Jordan Spieth just popped up last week. I got I to gotta run over there and whack down that story idea. And then all of a sudden, Rory's going to pop up, and I go over there and whack that one. Meanwhile, Jason Day hasn't quite done anything to really get our attention, uh, you know, certainly since the, uh, really the match play when he, he withdrew and uh, had that tearful press conference talking about his mother that, right. um, you know, was, uh, was really sad to watch. But um, he really hasn't given us reason to write about him. And so it's hard for me to say, 
oh yeah, I know all about what's going on with Jason Day because I really haven't talked to him much because you're chasing all these other stories. And at some point in the next month, Jason Day is going to play really well. And all of a sudden we're going to go, hey, how you doing? What's going on with your mom? What's going on with this? How you know? And, and right. we'll learn more about that story. But it is a hard thing. You talk about a beat writer for a baseball team has 25 guys on the team plus a manager and a few coaches. A beat writer for a football team has, was it a 52-man roster? Is that right? 54-man mm-hmm. roster, whatever it is. And, and again, some coaches with the team. We've got more than 200 players on the PGA Tour. It is really hard to know what's going on in the mind and the hearts of every single one of them all the time yeah so i mean you know you, every once in a while i'll do uh, a radio interview with uh with a, a station in canada and, and i know and i'm a little prepared but i'll get a graham delette question or i'll get a nick taylor or mckenzie <laughs> hughes question and it's like man i can i can kind of muddle my way through it and i'm used to that and i understand it but for me to say, oh, here's what's going on with uh, David Hearn right now. Let me tell you all about him. <laughs> That's really difficult for me because, quite frankly, he hasn't been on my radar screen. And, right. and it's really hard to have 200, 220 players on your radar screen at all times. In fact, it's impossible to do that um, and, and still do your job. So. Uh, that's one of the things that at least I've always struggled with. I've always thought that's really difficult to kind of uh, have a grasp on what's going through the minds of uh, even just a small handful of players, let alone everybody out there. For sure. All right, I've got two more questions for you, and then I'm just going to get one prediction for the PGA. Okay. And then I'll get you out of here. So we're all about life on tour, funny stories. We want to know what goes on inside the ropes. Let's say you were at the Jigger Inn on the road hole in St. Andrews, and a CEO walks in, is going to have a scotch and a cigar with you, and you want to impress this guy so that he invites you on his private jet and takes you to Pebble every year. What's the best golf story you've had with a tour pro um, that you would use to impress him? <laughs> the difference is the guy the Jigger in isn't going public with what I tell him, and, uh, <laughs> and this is going to be out there. Um, I will give you one of my favorites. This is one of my go-to stories that I've told over the last few years that um, I, I I don't even know how much of it, well, I, when you get to the kind of the punchline of it, I, I don't know how much of it was set up or not, but I, I think I can tell this without getting in too much trouble. So this was, <laughs> I guess, about 2011, 2012, somewhere in there. Um, you can look it up because it was the year that Phil Mickelson led at Quail Hollow going into Sunday. It wound up being the year that Derek Ernst won. Uh, he thought it was going to be rained out. They wound up – he was in a playoff against David Lynn, which, you know, you talk about two guys who uh, haven't done a whole lot since then. But uh, Phil was tied for the lead going into Sunday. In any case, myself and a few other golf writers saw Phil on Wednesday afternoon during the Pro-Am. And we – Pro-Ams are, are great. The back nine of a Pro-Am is a great time to go talk to a pro because they've kind of gone through the whole, uh, you know, talking, hanging out with the Pro-Am partners, and, you know, they're looking for a friendly face, and you walk up to them, and it's a good time to talk to these guys, and I've always enjoyed talking to Phil at these times. So we went, and, you know, Phil's, Phil's got his arm around my shoulder, and he's telling a story <laughs> of walking down the 16th hole at Quail Hollow, and, you know, finally he turns to me and goes, hey, are you guys coming on Saturday night? And we all look at each other like, uh, what do you mean? He said, oh, I'm running out. There's a restaurant a few miles away from the course. He said, I'm running it out. We've got NBA playoff games, NHL playoff games. And then there was a fight. I want to say it was a Mayweather fight that night. 
So we get there, and uh, we say, yeah, of course, yeah, sounds good. Of course. Yeah, you guys are invited, you know, <laughs> food, drink, all taken care of. Well, great. So we get there that Saturday night. We walk in, exactly as he said, you know, there are probably 60, 70 people in there, uh, players, caddies, some media, um, and, and just a, a nice time, you know, just a, a, a you know, bunch of TVs up. They've got the whole restaurant closed down. Phil greets us when we walk in. Hey, guys, grab a drink. And, in fact, uh, myself and a few other guys wound up sitting at the bar talking to Phil. He's had a, drinking a, sipping a glass of red wine, and, you know, he's still very much in contention going into the next day. But he's telling us some stories and uh, just, you know, like I said, a, a very good time, you know, nothing – uh, nothing too uh, too over the top, certainly, anything like that. So, in any case, we're watching some playoff games, and the fights are about to start. We've got this undercard starting, and let's say it's uh, the light featherweight title bout. It is the first match of the night. Phil stands up in front of the restaurant and says, Hey, guys, I just wanted to tell you all um, that I'm happy you guys could all make it, and I've got everything taken care of tonight. The The service here is great. If you need anything, just let them know. Food, drinks, it's all on me. Just have a good time. And, oh, by the way, wagering is very much acceptable tonight. So I just wanted <laughs> to let you know that, you know, you can wager amongst yourselves. Never, hey, okay. Well, you know, no one's really taking on this light featherweight bout. So, you know, not much going on. Just before the next bout comes on, you know, we're talking about the – the welterweight title fight. Mm -hmm. And Phil stands up again. He said, I know I said I wasn't going to make any more speeches, but I just wanted to let everybody know that in this fight, we've got the title holder who's 37-0 with 33 knockouts. He's going up against the challenger who's 17-9 with three knockouts. I don't know. I'm kind of feeling like the challenger is going to win this one. So... Like I said, uh, we could have some wagering here tonight. If anyone would like to wager me, uh, I'm going to take the challenger tonight. This is just classic fig jam. It's so <laughs> classic. I really hope I don't get myself in trouble with the story. So, so, of course, everybody in the place is into Phil and says, yes, absolutely. I want the, I want the title holder. I'm, yeah, you know, this is a no-brainer. Well, of course, you know how the story's going to go. Phil's guy knocks out the, the title holder in the second round. I mean, it was... Like, no time at all. <laughs> Phil walks around the restaurant collecting his money. My guess is that Phil rented out the restaurant for, I, I don't even know how much, but whatever he rented it out for, he made twice as much on the on the wagering with all the guys in there and probably just handed that over for tips to the wait staff. And at the end of the night, everyone goes, wow, thanks, Phil. That was great. You're the, you're the nicest guy ever. What a great party, and that was really cool of you to do. <laughs> Meanwhile, Phil's sitting there going, that didn't cost me a dime all night. All these guys are, are basically uh, paying for their own food and drinks tonight because they lost on the bet. That's, that's classic Fig Jam. That's an incredible story. I appreciate you telling that. All right, last general question before we do the prediction. I might get chastised on Twitter for even saying this, but I wanted to be a devil's advocate for a second because I've had this conversation before and I wanted to hear your take on it. So the whole career grand slam, I've been pondering on how amazing the career grand slam really is. Like would you look at a guy like Faldo that's got six, right, where it's just masters and opens? And would you say that six major championships is worse than someone that has four 
but has the career Grand Slam. Like, obviously, I know if you get the career Grand Slam, it proves that you can play and win on any condition, but I would argue that the PGA isn't really that distinct. It's more so the three before and how good you are at Augusta. So, like, as devil's advocate, how amazing really is the career Grand Slam? here i i hold it in pretty high regard okay Uh, i think that the first reason is that there's only five names on that list and the five names are you could probably put them in five of the top eight nine golfers of all time um you know sarazen might be the one kind of take it down just a little bit but you're you know sarazen's obviously one of the all-time greats I, i i don't know exactly where do you where you put that but the fact that there's only five and the fact that those five are absolute legends of the game, I, I think has a lot to do with it. If you had 12 guys who had done it and some guy who had won four, but wasn't necessarily like that great, uh, pick out a guy who's won four for me. I, I don't know, but yeah, I, I'm trying to think of somebody who's, and obviously four is a hall of fame career, but maybe not, maybe not legendary kind of top 10 type guy. If, mm-hmm. if someone like that had done it, it might take a little luster off of it. Just the fact that the best of the best are the ones who have done it, I, I think helps that a lot. And, and the other thing, like you said, and you know, you kind of glossed over it, but the fact that you can win on four different types of, of conditions, four different types of events, I, I think that speaks volumes. And, and the PGA does have an identity. I think the PGA is the one where, hey, you got to go kind of low. Uh, you know, it's they're going to they're gonna set up the course pretty fair, but you're going to have to go out and make some birdies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think there is that identity there. So I, I do think that that comes into play. I, I've always separated the absolute upper echelon, the top tier in the world, from the second tier by the fact that the top tier are the guys who can win on any course, any week, any time. And that the second tier is, well, there's this guy who might not be able to win on a Lynx course, and there's this guy who is a really good player, but you'd never see him contend at Augusta. Um, and I'm, I'm going into a sort of a, a weird tangent here, but John Rahm, one of the reasons he impressed me so much this year, isn't just because he came out and won as a 22-year-old, but he won at Torrey Pines, huge ballpark where you got to just go out there and absolutely smash the ball mm-hmm. nearly won a colonial which is a tight track where you've really got to work your ball around that golf course and you can't just smash driver and he won the irish open which is a links golf course at port stewart mm-hmm. where he's kind of playing obviously playing link seat style of golf that's that's three of the most different tournaments you will find all year where he either won or nearly won to me, that's what's so impressive. And coming back around to the original point is, I, I think that's what makes the career Grand Slam that important and, and that uh, noteworthy. The fact that these guys aren't just winning four majors, they're winning four different types of majors. Yeah, that's fair. I figured I'd throw it out there. I was curious to hear uh, your take on it because I don't think that's ever really been discussed. It's always just been assumed that, you know, it's. It's the pinnacle, which it is, but figured I'd throw a devil's, devil's advocate out there. That's All right. fair. That's fair. So, so I'll get you out on this. Early PGA Championship prediction. You've got, obviously, Rory, right, with his, yep. uh, his, his fourth finish, and, you know, he's won there twice. And then you've got Ricky, who had also his first win and actually beat Rory in the playoff in 2012 uh-huh. and finished tied fourth there last year. And then you've got guys like 
DJ, which would be absolutely absurd with his start if he didn't win a major in 2017. So I'm curious, uh-huh. one guy you really, if you had to put all your money on it, who you like for the PGA? I really, I, I've been saying for a while that I think Rory McIlroy is going to have a really strong summer, kind of like he did uh, three years ago. And obviously then he won the Open and the Bridgestone and the PGA, and he played really well. Last year he won the FedEx Cup. He, he tends to play some of his best golf late in the summer into the fall. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously what we saw last week is that he's not far off. And in fact, last week, if he had done uh, anything that was first few holes, uh, he would have been really, really close by the time it was over uh, on Sunday afternoon. So uh, it's a course, like you said, that he's won at. It's a course that he should play well on, should come in with some good vibes. And uh, I tend to think this, uh, all the Jordan, the Jordan rhetoric, all the the Jordan uh, celebration over the past week, and, and rightfully so, there's been a lot of it. I've got to think that annoys Rory a little bit. You know, just us saying, hey, you know, Jordan's sort of overtaken Rory as the most important golfer in the world. I I hope Rory hears that. I hope Rory thinks, you know what? That's not right. I've got four. He's only got three majors. I'm the best golfer in the world. I'm the guy they should be looking at as uh, sort of the number one atop that list of superstars, not Jordan. And and I'm going to make it my mission to go back and and reclaim what I think is mine. I I hope he's thinking that way because I I think if he does, he can go into this event at Quail and sort of kick it into extra gear and and have a really, really – uh, massive uh, uh, week there, and I, I think he can go out and win that tournament. So that, that's my pick. It's two weeks ahead of time. I always try to avoid making picks too far in advance because my, my question is always, you know, I'll, I'll get asked in December uh, who's going to win the Masters the next year, and I always say, well, tell me what the weather is. <laughs> Someone will look at me and go, well, what do you mean? I go, well, is it raining that week? Is it nice out? Is the wind blowing? I said, I can't I can't pick a winner until you pick a uh, weather condition for me. So, um, you know, I try not to get too ahead of things. But, again, I, I think it's all just set up for Rory to play really, really well. Yeah, it's hard to argue with that one. All right, Jason, I really appreciate you coming on. This was great. I appreciate the stories. Do you want to give the listeners where to find you? I know on Twitter you're at Jason Sobel ESPN. I know that's a great spot to find you. Yeah, no, people have found me too much already. I'm yeah. trying to hide. <laughs> All right, Jason. Well, uh, appreciate you coming on, and we'll have to have you on uh, again. This is great. Anytime. Thanks for having me. And just as the sun rises and sets in Scotland, so too have we come to the end of another par train. Be sure to follow us at the par train on Instagram and Twitter, and of course, subscribe to us on iTunes. And may your glasses always stay full and your ball always end up in the bottom of the cup.